Podcast. Well, are we cool now? No luck at all. Are you kidding me? The I think this podcast is called 50-Year-Old White Guys. There's zero <laughs> chance we're cool. We could change the name. <laughs> we can't change who we are, though. That's the problem. <laughs> 50 years of music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Vacation podcast. That's right, Timmy. How are you, man? I am doing well. I am not vacationing. Uh, Welcome to 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. We're part of the Drive-In Podcast Network. So you can go to musiccitydrivein.com for podcasts, articles, questions, answers, movie trailers, reviews. Did you guys see my new article I put up today? Very nice. I did. You were on fire, my friend. I did. Famous uh, music world breakups. I think we covered them. Good stuff. <laughs> Good stuff. He's the ones that we know about. I assume there's like 10,000 bands with a breakup story that never get to the record, right? Like this like uh, eight months in, bass player and drummer have the same girlfriend and, you know, they part ways or something like that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't bring up Yoko. In my article. Maybe I should have. Nah, that's such... I like that you... you that's such a layup. I like that you tread okay. in some less common waters. It was good. Jeff, Jeff, you're on the Jersey Shore. I ben, am on the Jersey Shore, man. Crazy times. It's ben, you're good. somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. That's right. Awesome. Y'all doing well? On vacation, man. Can't complain. Yep. Uh, on vacation, but I'd like the listeners to take note. They show up for the podcast. They're here in their seats, ready to go at 8.30 on a Wednesday night to unpack 1982. Jeff. Although I think I've made this clear. This is not work. I love this. (laughs) The best hobby I have. (laughs) The best hobby you have, taking shots at guys like me, like you did last week. I re-listened last week and burying you was awesome. That was great. (laughs) I feel like you asked for it, though. I feel like you handed Ben, like, a rag full of chloroform and a shovel. No, you like, made me listen to a whole bunch of unlistenable crap, and you were like, what artist is that? And I was like, I don't know. You are like, that was champagne. <laughs> Champagne's work? And I was like, no, I'm, a, I'm sad to report I know nothing about champagne. Well, now you do. Uh, and, and tonight's going to be cool because I get my, my cool cred back this evening. I'm Ooh, very right. excited. Oh, that's um, good because I'm very mainstream tonight, so it's going to be good. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right. Let's see what the Grammy Awards Committee felt about 1982, the Grammy winner for Song of the Year. It's the Grammy winner. Always on My Mind by Willie Nelson. Maybe I didn't love you. Oh, good Lord. Quiet as often as I could Right back to 1972, really? And maybe I didn't treat you Quiet as good as I should have If I made you feel second best 
sorry eyes blind You were always on my mind You were always on my mind Wow. All right. Ben Barton, you don't like Willie Nelson? So first of all, I have no beef with Willie. Okay. And that song is actually a good song. Thank but as a you. Grammy winner, as a Grammy winner. Best Dude, song. Of we'll get to this later, but uh, Michael Jackson, one of the reasons why he did Thriller was because he didn't win a Grammy for Off the Wall. Yep. He was like, I'm not appreciated enough. I need to work harder. And then no when you kidding. hear these Grammy winners, you're like, Dude, just stay home. Don't. Bomb. Yeah, right. Right. I tell yeah. you, that it's a lovely song by Willie, but. um. The sentiment is, I was really bad in our relationship, but I was thinking about you. Is that? Yeah, that, that sadly, that resonates with me a little bit. Oh, I'm, dear God. Maybe not bad with somebody, but bad at being with somebody. How about that? Like, okay. I was definitely bad at being a boyfriend. I was a bad boyfriend, but I had, I had low skills at it at first. But my, the, <laughs> thing that, the thing that I thought Ben was going to say that I will say is, the thing that's so... Iraq, so irritating about this song is like it has nothing to do with Willie Nelson. Where's the acoustic guitar? Where's the band? Where's like, like when Willie does Willie Nelson, he's very good. This is nothing to do with Willie Nelson. This is Willie Nelson does the Tootsie theme. What, and that's he... the one that wins the Grammy. It's like when they gave Denzel the Oscar for bad, whatever that movie, where's uh, the bad yeah, cop? Yeah, where's the bad cop? What's it yeah. called? Training Day, Day, Training Day. Training day, right? Like, you're thinking of Bad Lieutenant, which was a similar movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was an old other story, but but train. They gave Denzel the Oscar for Training Day because he says the N word a hundred times in it. But he's done like fifty better movies. Like how could how could Willie's career be? This could be the pinnacle when nothing from Redheaded Stranger anybody knows. Like it's super irritating. Like, did, I hate, did he? I did hate he write the that song? Sound of that track. That song sounds terrible it's a good song but if willie actually did it with like that acoustic guitar with all the holes in it and his road band it'd have been awesome that's my, it, that's my did did he write the song i have no idea hmm. no we're gonna have to look that up uh, well <laughs> you get a sense of what we're doing on this podcast we are trying to figure out the best song of every year based on uh, principles that we decide on our own, pretty much. That are a moving target. <laughs> all three of us, all three of us are going to disagree with the Grammys here because we think there's a better song out there in 1982. Um, can, I, can I just yeah, say? Yeah, please. Always yeah. in My Mind was written by a songwriting crew. It was first recorded by B.J. Thomas yeah, who's the, the the idiot who did Hooked on a Feeling? Hey, don't you take that back there right now? Go. I love B.J. Thomas. Uga chaga, uga chaga. <laughs> I say to you. Sir. Wow. All right. Well, nice. Don't mess with Guardians of the Galaxy. You're going to hurt Tim's feelings. That's, that's right. Like that's his wheelhouse right there. That's right. That's uh, so you've already indicated, Ben. 1982 is the year of Thriller. Uh, the most dominant album of uh of certainly the 80s and it was the best selling album for a long long time so wait are you ready it's the best selling album of all time worldwide oh yeah. interesting okay i'm sad to report it's not the best selling album ever in america 
Eagles, greatest hits. Eagles, greatest hits, volume one, which is like, yep. like America yep. sucks. Like, what's wrong well, with America? First, Thriller's fine. Thriller's a pretty good record. And that my song from this year will come from Thriller. Thriller's a really good record. How could you replace that with a stupid, and even volume one? Like, volume one <laughs> of the Eagles, greatest hits is even worse. So uh, we need to be careful here because there's a very, very dear person um, who loves the Eagles and listens to our podcast. And she was heartbroken <laughs> in the podcast where we dragged the Eagles. So I cannot be help. I'm sorry. I'm sure that person <laughs> is lovely. Thank you for listening. Tell all your friends. The Eagles are terrible. Oh, I hate the Eagles so much. The Eagles are my least favorite big famous band. There are worse bands than the Eagles, but there aren't worse bands that got as big as the Eagles. They just, they just drain my will to live having to listen to them. I and also, so Jeff, do you agree? Volume one's worse. Oh, like, I actually like, I, I'll ride for the long run. That song is great. Oh, and dude. when they add in the, the <laughs> slide guitar, I, that's fine. Like there's some good stuff in the later stuff. The early stuff is just brutal. Oh, it's okay. just slow country. It is just folk. Remember that moment in Almost Famous when the singer looks at the kid and says, just make us look cool. That's a right. direct quote from Glenn Fry to Cameron Crowe when the Eagles were first in Rolling Stone. And it sums up that whole band. Quote, just make us look cool. Unquote, the history of the Eagles. That's what that documentary should have been called. Oh, gosh. Oh, well, no bands tried more, tried harder, and been less authentic in rock history. The end. Wow. Sorry, friend. Keep listening. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> well, you know, you know this this dear friend. You know what she did? Uh, I got a a text from her son, and he said, "Hey, guess what we did?" I said, "What?" He's like, "Well, we we just love your podcast, so we did 1981." I said, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Well, my dad was the host, and we all zoomed in this family of five, and he did all the trivia, and we listened to the best songs of 1981." And I was like, okay, we're, the lawyers from 50 Years of Music will be calling your parents. I love it. We That's will great. be they suing. Do, was, her, was her pick Greeks Don't Want No Freaks from the long Okay, run stop, stop. <laughs> no more shots about the Eagles. All right, moving on with 1982. We don't have to talk about Thriller now because I think Ben will talk about it. You've got the first CD player ever is sold yeah. in 1982. Not to me, but I think I bought one in 84. I was an early adapter. Sorry, I got a puppy barking. I'm sorry. All right. Um, here's the, uh, the cynicism question of the day, the invitation to cynicism. Jeff, you seem to have a penchant, shall we say, for discussing Florida. What, uh, what has been more underwhelming throughout its career? Both of these things began in 1982. What has been more underwhelming? The Epcot Center <laughs> or USA Today? Oh, Epcot Center. Yeah, big time. Totally. USA Today is still hanging in there. I got a USA Today link from a Russian bot like three days ago. <laughs> and I, I got to say, in the 80s, before the internet, the only way you could have any chance in the NCAA tournament pool was to get the Monday morning USA Today edition that had all 64 teams and the rosters. Always and had good sports. Yep. Yeah. Betting lines in the NFL are good. 
The only thing that's a bummer about USA Today is it was editorial policy not to use any language that was above a fifth grade reading level. Right. Because they wanted it to be America's newspaper. That kind of breaks my heart. But Epcot Center is a bad ride in a fake dome. Like that, that thing is just, that's just like Peter Pan's flight, like gussing up. <laughs> Epcot Tim and Jeff, have you taken your kids to Epcot? Because I have. I have, I have yeah. I have. Dude, so it's amazing. Like you go down yeah. to Disney, I, I, we yeah. went twice and we spent like a week, we spent a whole bunch of money. It was it magical. It was really, right. really fun. Right. The Epcot Park, though, you go to it, and the kids are like, this is a mystery to me. Why does this exist? What is <laughs> what the is point of thing? Yeah. Well, you go to the foreign countries, they're like, why are we here? And I'm like, you know, they used to only sell alcohol at the foreign countries. Right. And, and you go. Alcohol in the whole park. And they were like, oh, well, that kind of explains it. Like, that's the only reason someone would go. <laughs> right. To get the alcohol, like to get the tequila drink at the Mexico. <laughs> It is it is a very strange circular walk around the world where the kids are like, "What what are we doing here? Can we go on a ride somewhere else?" No, dude. And I mean, I I haven't gone for a while. My kids are like ten and eight, and they were like, "This seems like this might be racist." And I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> just your good call, right on the money." The only time I've ever been to Epcot, I think Ben was with you when we went there for spring break in Florida. And like, for sure, they had alcohol. Yeah. I'm sorry, you went to Epcot for spring break with Ben? What? That's how hard we party. Florida, like you have to kill, once you're there, you have to kill time. You get to Florida and six hours later, you're like, well, this is a terrible mistake. So like, <laughs> between trips to Taco Bell and the bathroom, I think we went to Epcot. Well, we are, we are losing uh, that family as an audience. We're losing Florida as an audience. Florida knows what Florida is. They'll keep listening. Glenn, Hi, Glenn Fry as an audience. Uh, by the way, listeners, hey, love you in Denver. Uh, love you in um, Baton Rouge. Uh, love that you're downloading all our episodes. Feel free to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the one listener in San Juan who just downloaded us once, you know, screw you. All right. Uh, I, I can't wait for San Juan to join us in statehood in the next three years. Well, welcome, oh, welcome Puerto Rico. You're going to be the 52nd star. You're going to look great up there. All right, uh, Ben Barton. We did a Times Man of the Year uh, back in 1972, and it was kind of a trick because it was the silent majority was Time Magazine's Man of the Year, which enrages me that it's not just a person. Who was Time's Man of the Year in 1982? Yeah, Reagan? Jeff? I'm going to go with the Macintosh home computer. The computer was Time's Man of the Year. Jeff Simons. How do you know that, Jeff? Because I don't spend any time learning about Asia. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good point. Yes, you have plenty of time. Actually, Jeff Simons, this next question. So the website I go to to find out about each year, I think it's I think it's from England. I'm not sure. But they have all sorts of great information. It just so happened that they do a, a breakdown of what things cost. And it just so happens that this year the house that they picked was in Annapolis, Maryland. No way. I couldn't believe it. So here's this British website giving us the price of a house in Annapolis in 1982. 
a newly constructed single family home in Annapolis costs how much? No, by the no way, like you can't by the way, I, I would just say that I could never do this because I don't know what things cost. So I'm very impressed if you're within, I don't know, $50,000. I'm going to say $77,900. $64,900. That's pretty darn Jeff, man, what year, close. how old was the house you grew up in? Well, we bought a new house in Annapolis, Maryland in 1982. Dude, I knew it. I was actually like, you're going to do this because his house must have been from 1980s. That was wow. I think that's the exact year we bought and moved into the house my parents. And dude, it was a lovely wow. split level ranch. It was great. great. It Single was. family home. It yeah. It was uh it was right in the middle of the I mean, obviously it was a little nicer than I thought because it's above the average, but it, you know, it was right wow. in the middle of middle America for sure. There that's you awesome. go. Boy, talk about, right. about a question that's a layup. Thanks. I feel so much better about myself. <laughs> it's gonna it's not gonna last, but all right, let's uh, transition. Now that we know what 1982 is all about, let's go to the number one hit. Jeff, there are two. I'll let you pick. I'm, I thought we'd do a little medley. It's the number one hit. Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett. That's enough. And then here's the other one. A cheesy rock song, but when you play it in contrast to Ebony and Ivory, boy, I was rocking out there for a second. Wait, yeah, how yeah. is it not Beat It? Is Beat It not the biggest hit of that year? It'll be no. 83, because Thriller comes out in the fall of 82, yeah. and 83 and 84 is when it sells all the copies. Oh, dude, you're right. Look at this. Uh, the, this the Girl is Mine, October yeah. 18th. Billie Jean, January 2nd. Yep. 83. So, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah, it took a minute, but uh, those two songs were enormous. I mean, I heard Ebony and Ivory, like, I mean, did you each hear those songs 500 times? Oh, like, yeah. So many Although times. I was super happy to hear the Joan Jett one. That was great. Yeah. Although that's, uh, you know, is it okay that Joan Jett is 24 and the dude at the record machine is 17? We have a double standard that it's okay if she's cougaring, but it's not okay that No, nope, Danny... I'm, st I'm still uncomfortable. I'm still uncomfortable. Okay. It's right. bad. Because he's about... Uh, 17, which means it could be like 14. <laughs> oh, day. Come on. Be generous to Joan. Yeah. Do you guys remember that Saturday Night Live skit where um, Joe Piscopo is playing Sinatra to Eddie Murphy, Stevie Wonder, and he wants yes. to record Ebony and Ivory? You're blind as a bat. Song, like, life's an Eskimo pie. Let's take a bite. That was, was one of the all-timers. Oh, 
you know what? I listened to that song today, Ebony and Ivory, and I was just thinking about the 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 level of sincerity Paul McCartney seemed to have. Like he was like people are the same wherever you go. You know, there's good and bad in everyone. Like I think he was really trying to get something across to all of us. Yeah, he was a cheese whiz in the eighties, particularly. He that's the same year he releases Pipes of Peace. And yes. A whole bunch of Paul McCartney, like, can't we all just get along songs? I remember that song where they, he, he does the Christmas Day World War I thing, where they get out of the yep. trenches and celebrate Christmas. That was a great song. I should have picked that. All right. He also we did a keep... Songs Like Us theme in that period. So let's not get Oh, that song's great. Spies <laughs> Like Us. Spies Like Us. I love that one. Uh, I mean, bus. That was, he must have stayed up all night with that rhyme. <laughs> 22nd hit. All right. Um, well, we're going to get to our three songs. Two more tidbits from 1982. Central Park has a nuclear uh, weapons proliferation protest. Hmm. New Yorkers come out. People come to New York. They gather in Central Park to protest the proliferation of nuclear weapons. How many people do you think attended this protest in 1982. Come on, New Yorker. 25,000? 700,000. I was going to say half a million, yeah. 700,000 people. In Central I, Park? Where? I, I don't know, but that's a remarkable uh, amount of, of, of civic unrest. or That's dramatic. Every, every single one went home with that that uh, bake sale versus nuclear weapons. Oh, bread, yes. not bombs. And, yeah, yeah, and put it on their Volvos. Yeah. And then drove all over New England with them for the next eight years. Stop. New England doesn't have that many people. All right. It's the impossible question. My little nephew is a drummer in a band. He's pretty good. I've only seen one video. Uh, he was in a high school band. They were doing um, Fleetwood Mac, The Chain. He looked good behind the drums, doing nice. a little Mick, Mick Fleetwood. I can't name. <laughs> I think I can name uh, Keith Moon because he died. I can name Buddy Rich because he was on the Muppet Show. <laughs> and an enormous prick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Not on the Muppet Show. He was pretty cool. I don't think I can name another drummer. Oh, Don Henley is a drummer. Yes. So, so, so I'm going to put the question to the two of you. <laughs> Who are rocks or music's top three drummers of all time? Again, uh, not just really proficient at their instrument, but they have a style. Is, is it more difficult to pick out a style of a drummer than it is a style of a guitarist? No, it's okay. Yeah. You're okay? We'll um, have a harder t- I'll have a harder time on bass guitar, but Jeff will be amazing at that. Okay. But okay, drummer's we'll good. We can do drummer. Bass guitar will be Mark King, so that's easy. All right. Um, You're hilarious. Fucking level 42. <laughs> I love you. Never change anything about you. It's coming. Don't worry. All right, so top three drummers. Let's go back and forth. Uh, ben, you go first. Who's your third greatest drummer of all time? Oh, I, I can't do it in an order. I'm going to let Jeff go first. He's going to choose Keith Moon. Tell us. Uh, okay, I'll choose Keith Moon. 
Um, <laughs> it's completely unconventional. And Keith Moon's whole idea was rather than keep the beat, I will let the beat be felt and understood, and I will solo and fill all around it. So Keith Moon's the only guy who, who the only drummer in rock history who doesn't keep tempo. He lets huh. he lets the two rhythm instruments keep tempo, and then he goes all the way around it. Um, and he has a huge falling off moment. Like when he's overweight and drunk, he can't play well. But from like 64 to 73, he's just super, everything he plays is super exciting. Ben's favorite Who song is a B-side instrumental called uh -huh. Dogs Part Two, which where the only vocal is fake barking. And it's basically, <laughs> yeah, that's perfect, perfectly done. The rest of it is three and a half minutes of Keith Moon pretending he's playing the song Wipeout. And it's just, it's just fantastic. It's just great. And it's exciting. And it's totally unpredictable. Like what I love about Keith Moon is like, he does stuff he's not supposed to do. And in so doing it, uh, I think elevates tracks and songs and performances. So yeah, he's on my top three. Uh, I just love him. All right. But Keith he's Moon. super limited. So when I made fun of Townsend, I called it a Homer pick. Yeah. Keith Moon is the is the Tom Brady. He's a legit like legit. Okay, I'm not going to choose him because we're going to do. I'm going to do three others, but he's a legit call. That guy was on incredible and just right. It was like he just tore it up. It made no sense. It, he was like, you know, what would be great is if I stopped doing the beat and just did the flavor. Like all yeah, I wow. do is fills the whole time. Why keep the beat when I could just do fills? It would be like if you go to a restaurant <laughs> and they're like, you know what? We skipped dinner. Here's a dessert cart. Like just, yeah. just eat dessert. Have at it. Have at it. Okay. Good. So I will choose a parallel and I'll be curious if Jeff did. I think he won't because of the same era. I'll choose bottom. I mean, that's the obvious okay. choice. That's a Led Zeppelin drummer. And he keeps the beat a little bit more than Moon. He's a little more in control than Moon. But uh, to me, he's the sound of rock drumming. He's okay. like, he's the one, he's the beginning, the end. He's who you compare everybody to. He's the guy. Totally agree. I won't pick him because okay. you picked him. But like the two things about Bonham is one, he played with, the, with these tree trunk sized drumsticks. He played with the absolute biggest sticks you could play. And he, could, he was still, he could play really hard, but he was also very light. He could have, he had very expressive. And in preparation for this, I was listening to, random tracks and there's a there's a terrible paul mccartney solo record from the mid 70s <laughs> called is it the speed of sound it's his disco yeah. record it's the one with silly love songs on yeah. it yeah so, great album the, the, the deluxe edition has a one of the like for, forgettable tracks in the middle of the record there's a version with bonham on drums where like he asked john bonham to come in and play the drums on it and I only listened to the 90-second sample on iTunes, but it's a whole different song. It's terrific. And it's wow. all because Dan Bonham is unmistakably himself, and he's driving the song, and he brings out a totally different performance. It's a great pick. All yeah, right. Here's my weirdo this, pick. Yeah, just go listen ahead. to the first 10, 15 seconds of When the Levy Breaks. That's everything. Like, it is. Super, super, super simple, and it just booms. And then you hear it again, like, like the uh, No Sleep Till Brooklyn by the Beastie Boys. They sample that. Yeah, and just the sample alone, you're like, wow, that sounds great. And then you're like, oh, my God, this is when the levee breaks. Yep. <laughs> awesome. All right. My second pick is totally weird. It's not a rock drummer, but it's my favorite uh, my favorite jazz drummer. And I'm just going to do a shout out to jazz because we're, we're past the moment where jazz uh, is – is in the zeitgeist and is like, you know, if we did this, if we were all 60 years old, there'd be some jazz tracks in this thing. So I'm going to yeah. go with Elton Jones from the 
John Coltrane Quartet, the one with what? McCoy Tyner and Reggie Workman. What's his Elvin name? Jo Elvin, Elvin Jones. Jones. He's the drummer on My Favorite Things. He's the drummer on um, Live at Birdland. He's the drummer on um, uh, I Love Supreme. And I, I'm not a, I'm not a jazz bow. I don't understand jazz very well. I, I mean, I've got Miles Davis, John Coltrane, a little Thelonious Monk in them. But like all the secondary tertiary guys, I can't tell them apart. I'm not one of those guys who can hear three seconds of saxophone and be like, oh, that's Sonny Rollins. Um, so I'm I'm not an expert in this field. But Elvin Jones's dr drumming is so exciting and muscular. Most jazz drumming annoys me because they never hit the snare drum. It's like a million ride cymbal hits and every once in a while they'll uh -huh. go like, kick snare. Ding, 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 ding. Elvin Jones plays so unbelievably hard and has all of that jazz flair, but if he wanted to, could just, just bring the house down himself. And uh, I think he's fantastic. And it, for me, he's the jazz drummer that makes jazz exciting. A lot of jazz drummers impress me technically but they don't like I don't get that same excitement from their performances the way I do from rock drumming except for Elvin Jones so he's my number two awesome awesome all right Ben who else is in your mix all right my number two is two drummers what James Brown band from 1965 yes. to 1972 had two guys Clyde Stubblefield and John Jabo Starks they Clyde were there Stubblefield together actually the sound of the funky drummer that beat uh -huh is is Stubblefield, but you can't separate the guys okay they, they both of them recently died they described themselves as brothers they played together their like basically their entire adult lives and that sound that drum beat sound of james brown and a particular funky drummer like that's been sampled like that's a public enemy song that's an nwa song freedom 90 has a sample from funky drummer like yep. there's a thousand songs that come from funky drummer those are my guys Yep, and that would have been my that was would have been my third pick if you didn't pick them. So I I, I mean like Moon Bonham and the James Brown guys are probably the right answers. So well, don't don't worry, I'll be picking Freedom ninety in a few years. So don't oh, worry. Oh, dude, I will. That's a lot. <laughs> Write me down in pen for Freedom ninety. It's <laughs> such a great song. That song kicks so much ass. All right, so let me let me try to think of somebody that's totally different and off the. Um, I think I'll go with, uh, just randomly off the top of my head, I'm choosing between either picking like a punk drummer from the 80s for just pure adrenaline, but Moon kind of covers that. So I'll go with Stuart Copeland. Oh, that's a great one. On last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I love what Stuart Copeland does, but I actually think the drum track on Driven to Tears might be the best rock drum performance in a track, just in, a, like, just in terms of composition, the technical precision, what it does in relationship to the song. Like when that song goes to double time at the end and he's doing all those -da -da -boom, -ba -da -boom, -ba -da -boom. so I'll go with Stuart Copeland because he's, uh, he's so unrecognizably himself. Like nobody's tunes their snare as high as he does. Like it sounds such, like such a crazy high crack compared to most people. So that's my guy. Love it. Love it. Last one, Ben. Uh, it's a partially jazz, partially rock selection. Omar Hakim, the uh, drummer nice. in the weather report. He's also, he's the drummer on Let's Dance. Yep. Which is just like, like just listen to that David Bowie record. The drums are unbelievable. He's a great studio drummer. And then he was the drummer with Sting's Dream of the Blue Turtles. Oh. The live tour, the records from that, and the documentary. Dude, the drum solo in I Burn For You 
Yeah. Will blow your mind. It's the best rock drum solo of all time. I he burn for you. Okay. Tears it apart. And he starts out all slow. And by the end, he's like, and the, the, the crazy thing about it is I, I encourage you to watch the video. Okay. Because he's just smiling and super calm. <laughs> as his arms and legs are completely touching every part of the drum kit. It's <laughs> crazy. He's so fast. He's so fast. Like when I watched that, I was like, so I like, I mean, again, I ride for Bonham, but like as a matter of technical proficiency, the sheer speed of this dude, and again, huh. not breaking a sweat at all, just grinning like Sting's just paying me a bunch of money to do this. <laughs> amazing. Like, like just flying through. Yeah, that's a great pick. Uh, I'm going to say yeah. um, uh, fourth place just off the podium um, and current drummer, I'd go with Questlove. Who oh, I yeah, for sure. A fantastic yeah. player, yeah. producer, performer. Everything he plays, he makes better. So, well, well I dude, actually, I mean, the two, the two James Brown guys are his, his, uh, like, without his question. He loves he's, an ex, he's the next generation, but like that, Questlove's, Questlove's pocket is, I actually saw, you, we saw it together. We saw, uh, John Paul Jones, Questlove, and Ben Harper do a whole bunch of, uh, Led Zeppelin covers at Bonnaroo at like a late night jam. Yeah. And I mean, I thought, I thought Questlove held his own and no problem playing those old songs. He sounded terrific, I thought. I actually, I should note, I have heard of Questlove. So. All right. And actually, Gina Shock, drummer for the Go-Go's, uh, just popped into my head as well. So I've got... Was pretty, she was pretty cute, wasn't she? She was my <laughs> favorite. Of the five Go-Go's, I wanted Dude, to... Dude, you can't Shock. say that we're talking about drummer proficiency and you said, yeah, she's cute. She could play too, but she was also super cute. Okay, here Omar we go. Omar Akeem is a very handsome man, too, if you want me to be equal opportunity. <laughs> Thank you. He really is. He's awesome. He really is. He's a great-looking guy. Omar. Do you know Omar Akeem <laughs> is the drummer on Brothers in Arms, which is the- Oh, yeah, the, totally. The worst oh, use really? of him ever. Like, he doesn't oh, no, dude, that's not the worst <laughs> use of him ever. The drummer in Journey got Wait. sick in 2015, and he toured Wait. with Journey. And I was like, Wait. what the hell happened? <laughs> Your volume just went crazy. You I'm so angry. Oh, I'm livid. I'm livid about that. Wait, the drummer from Journey got hurt? He got and sick. And so Omar Hakim toured with Journey. And I was like, uh, hopefully the rest of Journey left the stage so he could just play by himself. <laughs> Our three songs. Ben Barton, take it away. So you know that last year in 81, I chose a song that actually came out in 82, which was Mild right. Eating. So now I'm, I'm doing that today. An album that came out in 82, it was basically a big hit in 83. Okay. So uh, Thriller is not actually, it's, it's a great, 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 great record. Um, I'm choosing Want to Be Starting Something, the fourth single yes. from Thriller, which is easily by a mile my favorite track from Thriller. Hit us, Jack. Excellent. Wanna Be Starting Something by Michael Jackson. Something. You got to be starting 
really, really, really Dang. weird take from this record. It's actually an off-the-wall track. He he wrote this song in 1978. It was supposed oh, to be okay. off-the-wall, and it wasn't ready to be off-the-wall, so we saved it for Thriller. It's a super weird song. It's six minutes long. It's got a whole bunch of different parts. The lyrics are, like, aggressively nonsensical. <laughs> <laughs> You're There's a vegetable. A part of it. Are you ready? You're, you're a, vegetable. a vegetable. You're a vegetable. Still, they hate you. You're a vegetable. You're just a buffet. You're a vegetable. They eat off of you. You're a vegetable. That's an actual thing that happens in that song. When I chose this song, I went back and looked at the lyrics, and I was like, I should probably make sure that I know what this song's about. And then I reread it. I was like, I still have no idea at all. Um, it includes a part that's like sort of generously an homage, but it's basically a theft of this 1972 African disco song, Mano Dibango's Soul Makasa, which Mama is also a yep. Right. That part at the end is just a yeah. straight like re recasting of that guy's music. Oh, um, wow. And they actually came to peace and Jackson cut him a, a check for it. Okay, um, but yeah, here's what I love about that song. First, uh, in comparison to the rest of the record, that guitar part on this, that unbelievable, like it's so pretty and interesting. Um, and I love that it's a 78 song. When they go back in the studio, they just throw everything at it. They put the mama say in it. They put different parts in it. They remix it. They make it six minutes long. Uh, it's amazing. The other thing that's crazy about this record and generally so Quincy Jones is the producer of both Off the Wall and this record. Off the Wall sells 10 million copies. And when Thriller came out, there were articles in Billboard saying, can Michael Jackson match Off the Wall? Like Off the Wall was such a massive, gigantic hit. It wasn't wow. clear that he could match it. Uh -huh. uh, and the, the Quincy Jones thing is crazy. So Quincy Jones is a completely different generation than Michael Jackson. He's born in 33 in Chicago. He's a son of the Great Migration. He goes to the Berklee College of Music on a full Boston. scholarship to play trumpet, drops out in the middle of his first year, gets a gig touring with a big band. Then he becomes an amazing arranger. I mean, he's one of the greatest big band arrangers. Yes. He worked for Sinatra. He worked for Billy Holiday. Like, he's a, like a giant in that area. That's in the 50s. Then in the 60s, he becomes a soundtrack writer. He does a soundtrack for uh, In the Heat of the Night, In Cold Blood. Jeff Simons oh. or Tim, he writes the theme song for a great TV show from the 70s. Oh, don't, don't do anything. I got it. I got it in my iPod. Is it the Jeffersons? Oh, you're going to know it instantly. It takes about three seconds. Let me just find it here. It's a great song. Isn't that amazing? He did this for Stanford and Sunday. All he had done is that. So great. I know, I know. Yeah. So then he's like doing all this arranging for movies and stuff. He's the musical director for The Wiz. And Michael Jackson's on The Wiz. And he's like, hey, I'm trying to put out a solo record. Hey, Jeff. How many solo records had Michael Jackson put out before Off the Wall? Like full albums? Yeah. 
Jeez, I don't know. Is it zero? I know he did Ben for that movie. No, dude, Off the Wall is his fifth record. Wow. What? Thriller is his sixth record. So they're all what? six. Dude, well, when not. he was on Motown, it was like they just whipped him with chains. They were like, put out more records. He put out like two records in 72 and two in 73. Wow. No The only one you've heard of is that Ben one, but they made him put out a bunch of records. He took a long time off. He talks to Quincy Jones, and he's like, who should I get to produce it? And Quincy's like, me. You should hire me <laughs> to do that. They put out Off the Wall. They put off Thriller. And actually, the, the craziness about Thriller, so um, like we've heard a bunch of music from that time. It sounds really different. It's an aggressive, strange record. Now we think of that as the soundtrack of the 80s, but it wasn't at the time. Okay. It's a post-disco record. It sounds super strange, and that's partially Jackson's brilliance, but that's partially Quincy Jones, for sure, yeah. bar none. Right. Like, he, like, Jackson was so smart to choose a guy who was like a great arranger from a generation before and bring it all together and create that sound. And Wanna Be Starting Something, to me, is the perfect example of that. Like, it's a disco song, but then when you break out the constituent parts, you're like, oh, it's, it's really unusual. Like, it's a very, very strange remixing of disco. Just love it. Can't love it enough. Yeah. That, that opening kills. Can we do the opening again? Do, like, the first 20 seconds again. Right. And wait for the guitar. The guitar's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I have an awful question for both of you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, hashtag. What's it called? I'm gonna humble brag a little bit. Okay. So I played two famous keyboards in my life, meaning the actual keyboard itself sure. is a part of rock history. Which one is cooler? When I was uh, both recording with Rich Price, uh, I used the same uh, Wurlitzer that um, Pink Floyd used to record Comfortably Numb. Like not the same model, wow. but the exact same keyboard. I actually borrowed it from Bob Ezrin, the producer, who was in the studio next door. Okay whirly and i'm playing and i'm like wow this is beautiful he's like yeah that's that's the one on comfortably numb and of course i'm like <laughs> trying to be cool but my hands start trembling the second one is those those little like boom, boom, keyboards are from a prophet five that i also played on a rich price track i've played the literal prophet five that recorded want to be starting something oh that's pretty that badass right yeah there. that's right i'm gonna go with that one yeah i'm gonna go with that one that's awesome Surprisingly, the things that I did on those two instruments are less iconic and in the zeitgeist than the just, original. <laughs> just you wait. Just you wait. Hang tough. Just All you right. wait. Yeah. Great. Um, great job, uh, Ben Barton. Jeff Simons, what's your song? Oh, well, it pales in comparison. That's such a great pick. Um, I didn't pick a Thriller song because I knew Ben would pick it. The other thing I'm not going to do is 1982 is the last year for my homers. Like it's the last year the Who record music that's worth really talking about seriously. And Townsend put out a pretty great solo record, but I'm not going to pick either one of those either because I'm trying to stick to one song per band. But um, 82 was a was a good last gasp year for the Who. Ben's favorite Eminence Front is from that year, and Townsend's song Slit Skirts. Would have, they're, they're probably bronze and silver. The Clash record their last record in, co in Combat Rock. There's a lot of my super favorites 
right. that, were, that were big. But I'm going to go with a lesser known band on purpose in the hopes that our dear listeners, for example, if you've been wasting your life listening to the Eagles, just imagine the, the pleasures that await you when you introduce yourself to my pick, which is a band from England called The Jam. And this was their, their biggest hit in America. It's a song called A Town Called Malice. Town Called Malice by The Jam. waves of punk rock bands um like the sex pistols and the clash and uh the buzzcocks uh the jammer in that first wave and they put out their first single within three weeks of all those other guys the big difference for the jam is that they had been a band since 1973 when they were 14 years old they started (laughs) playing in paul weller's garage paul weller's dad was his manager and driver and biggest fan. And from 73 to 77, the jam were like a pub rock band playing covers, playing birthday parties. And then Paul went to see the Clash and the Sex Pistols in 1976 and tore the whole playbook up. And they reimagined themselves as a modish punk band, like lots of influences. But because they've been playing together for four years, because they were all really good players, and I think also importantly, because they had money, like the Jam aren't from London, they're from Woking, like it's just a pretty nice suburb. Um, so they had a van and they had decent equipment, like they had Rickenbacker guitars and amplifiers that weren't all crapped out. They sounded great from the jump and they very quickly became England's biggest band. If you ask, if you actually look, say what was the biggest band yeah. in England from 1978 to 1982, it's the jam and they're invisible in the United States. They're not on like the it's amazing who blow up in England and don't break in America until the early eighties. The jam only tour America twice and they're just starting to get traction. A town called Malice, they make a video, MTV plays it. They tour all the major North American uh, East coast cities in 82. And just as it's about to happen for them, Paul Weller decides the jam thing is done. I'm breaking this band up. He, he they play four nights in a row at Wembley in front of oh. 25,000 people every night. He breaks the band up. He starts a band called the Style Council, which does yes. nothing in America. And then since what? 1991, Paul has made a solo record every two years. I believe there are 14 of them. And nobody in America knows who this guy is. So if you're hearing this and you're like, I vaguely recognize that song, but I have no idea who the jam are. I've never heard of Paul Weller. There's like two dozen of the greatest rock songs you've never heard waiting for you spread across a series of really excellent records but i love this i love the bass line the drumming is outrageous the rhythm guitar playing's out of sight and like and the but the best thing about paul weller he writes great songs he writes great two and a half to three minute rock songs and uh i just i so i'm picking this one partly to try to elevate 
the Jams profile with our seven listeners. And I'm <laughs> also, because I just, this song, I just love it. And when I first heard it in 1982, I loved it so much. I wanted to be in the jam immediately and play that killer bass line with those guys. And I awesome. kind of still want to be in the jam, I think. That's my <laughs> Great stuff. Ben, do you like that song? I do, I do. Um, yeah. I, like, Jeff is a Paul Weller guy, for sure. Tried and uh -huh. true. And this is a Homer pick. Uh, but I, I can't complain. Like, I've had some yeah. Homer picks, for sure. So I get it. So, this Jeff, is mine. You got that right. I think is, is what you're trying to say. Jeff, I've, I've never told you this. Oh, but dear. in 1993, I am the style section editor of the Northeastern News. And I get all sorts of stuff. <laughs> of course you are. I, I get, I get like, and all I wanted to do is write. And this is the way I could get a column. Yeah. So I could write my column every week. Uh, but I also had to be in charge of the style section. So like, I, I had to interview the gin blossoms, for example. I didn't know who the gin blossoms were, but I interviewed them. And then That's a um, interview because hadn't their lead singer just committed suicide? Just right they went died. Out? Yeah. Did you and know that before I, you started talking to him where you're like, Silla, how's the tour going? <laughs> it was, so many of my questions were like about this kind of self-indulgent drinking and drug use that seems to thread through the, the lyrics. And um, so, so when, I, when I asked that first question, he's like, well, you know, our, our lead singer just... So that was a very awkward interview. I, I, I had to cross off a whole bunch of questions. But Jeff Simons, I was given tickets to go see Paul Weller and, and do an interview and an article in the Northeastern News about Paul Weller's new album. I, at this stage of my life, had not heard of Paul Weller, had not heard of The Jam, had not heard of The Style Council. But I went to the show in Boston. Uh, I think it was Orpheum or something. Jill Solbule opened up. Oh. I kissed a girl. Yeah, that's another Jeff Simon's favorite. Well, I interviewed her. <laughs> she's very funny and charming, so she gets. Yeah, she yeah. is. She's she's great. She's great. Great interplay with the audience. Uh, after the gig, I go back and I talk to Paul Weller and I try to interview him. Jeff, he I could not nothing to do with your ass for sure. I, I could not understand a word he was saying. He was talking so quickly uh, and so gosh darn Britishly. I just didn't know what he was saying. Um, I ended up writing a very generic review of the performance and of the album. But I've come to love him. I mean, I love the jam, love that song. I love the style council, my ever-changing moods. I mean, they're great. I just did, I wasn't cool enough back then to get what Paul Weller was all about. Yeah, it helped that there was a senior, I was at a K through 12 and this was seventh grade and there was a senior who knew I loved music and was like telling me what to listen to. And he had gone and seen the jam in DC and had like, like a jam t-shirt and so when I asked him about the jam, he was, uh, I, you know, there was no going back. I had to at least own that new record so I could try to be cool around Bill Clark, who's now a really, White House uh, photographer. This really brings okay. up my question of the night, which leads into my song. When did you guys become cool? This is a perpetual question for me, I think. I don't know if that's happened yet. 
because I, you know, I get the set, the, the whole shtick of this podcast is that I don't know music, whereas you guys know music and play instruments and we're going to record shops and, you know, did you, did you perceive yourselves as cool in high school? No. Or Ben? I was sort of cool 11th and 12th grade. What about college? Were you guys in a band together in college? We were. Did yeah. you think we of yourselves as... We were definitely super cool in college. Ask anybody we went to college. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing that we did that was really smart is we went to a college where being cool wasn't a cool thing. That's right. We just did our uh-huh. own thing, which was great. Right. I and, and I, The definition of cool is you don't care... Exactly. You, because you like it. I think going the college we chose really helped with that. Because nobody was, no. I mean, there were like six cool kids, honestly. And they were kind of outcasts. Yeah. They were kind of, <laughs> they were kind of, they kind of, un, they kind of uncoupled themselves from the rest of us who were like, well, you know. Well, my song for 1982, I did not discover until I kind of got to that stage in the 90s where I was like out of high school, I was out of college. And then I discovered this band called The The, which when they were making records in 81 and 83, and then I think again in 86, they weren't on my radar even remotely. But then I go back in the 90s and listen to The The, and I am gosh darn cool, thanks to Matt Johnson and The The. So this is my pick for 1982, it's recorded in 1982, released in 83. It's called Uncertain Smile. And Jeff's going to bring us all the way to the 210 mark. Uncertain Smile by The The. A howling wind blows the litter as the rain flows. As street lamps pour orange colored shapes through your window. A broken soul stares from a pair of watering eyes Uncertain emotions for some uncertain smile I've got you under my skin where the rain can get in So at some point we're going to have to do... uh, Top three rock and roll piano players, keyboard players. Will Matt Johnson be in your top three? He probably won't. I like this. <laughs> I, I liked it when it came out. I, there's another song. What's the, the the song that starts with the harmonica that's right in your uh, uh That Dogs of Lust? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that comes out. <laughs> I like, I mean, I, there's yeah. definitely some Viva songs that, that stuck with me. Um, and I yeah, knew but, this was coming. I know you well enough to know that Viva was going to make the, the list. But it, you knew them in the 80s? Yeah, yeah. I remember ah, Jen Chiermonte, um, I was making a London Calling uh, record replication in uh, art class. And I remember, uh-huh. and I don't know if I was cool enough for Jen to actually speak directly to me, but she kind of looked over my shoulder. The next thing I knew, she was doing the Soul Mining record as her come on and i was like we didn't speak about that but i totally made that happen (laughs) 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 at 12 years old that's pretty darn cool because at 12 years old i'm still like oh jay giles band 
you know, whatever's playing the big hits. Oh, uh, Laura Branigan. I knew every word to Gloria. I think I did too. I, I mean, one of the wonderful things about being 12 is you just consume things unashamedly, right? Like you just, Solid I was gold. just everything. Like I love the Jails Gals band and I loved the, the and I loved the jam and I love Michael Jackson. And I, it didn't feel like I was, I was being forced yet to pick teams. You know, I was just like, I was, it was just all coming in, you know? Uh-huh. But you were at- so I never owned Thriller. I bought Thriller in the 2000s. But I oh, that's fascinating. Thriller, really? But I did not buy Thriller at a protest for how popular it was. Oh, I see. I, I bought it, it's so funny you say that, Ben. I bought it late, too. I bought it on cassette on a road trip with my parents because there was nothing to listen to. And I went into, like, a five and dime. It was, like, the only cassette for sale was, like, a, I'm pretty sure it was, like, a bootleg copy of Thriller that I paid like $2 for in a truck stop. But that's the first time I owned it too, because you didn't need to own it. No, was, you couldn't yeah. walk away from it. Yeah. For sure. yeah, it was on all the time. Well, are we cool now? No luck at all. Are you kidding me? The I think podcast this podcast is called 50 year old white guys. There's zero <laughs> chance we're cool. We could change the name. <laughs> we can't change who we are though. That's the problem. <laughs> 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 yeah, great, there's a great, great Simpsons boy. where um, there's a great Simpsons where Homer's like, "Is it so uncool that it's cool?" No, Dad. Well, I don't care. That makes me cool, right? No. <laughs> like, <they're> just, <laughs> Still, it's the one where they go to Homer Hubble Palooza. Yeah, and, uh, he's bought him tickets for the um, for the rock concert. And he keeps trying to be cool, and they're just like, "No, absolutely." Yeah, not. here comes that cool guy, dude. Are you being sarcastic? Right. I don't know. know. That's an interesting question. I don't think I was ever cool. And I think um, I, there was some like existential moment where I knew I never would be. And so, <laughs> but then, so that hurt for a while. And then deciding I knew that that was the case was kind of liberating. Right. So I definitely right. have been like, I had this, like, I just told that story about playing those two keyboards. Like that, that kind of sounds cool. Pretty but I didn't cool. Feel cool it. I felt like, you know, Nervous. Like a guy with a job <laughs> who happened to be in a cool room, but I didn't feel like I belonged there necessarily while it was happening. So. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I think you both are very cool. Um, <laughs> I think I'm cooler. Oh, good. But I am going to take a giant step back next week in 1983. So brace yourselves. Thanks for listening to 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Look us up on Twitter and leave us a note. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and live in a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An Electric Cat production. See you there. Electric Acid. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. 
It's a talk show covering the changing world around us, from renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.